0: Hello, I'm Toby Haydock. I've done DVDs, big finishes, even my own radio show, all about Dot 2. Still not canon though, am I? Nope.
1: Uh,
0: hello everyone. Now uh, off the top I would like to thank Jim Bradshaw from BAFTA, who has really helped forge a proper introduction uh, with some amazing people. Who I'd have thought way beyond the reach of this amateur. Yes, it's amateur. As if you hadn't guessed. Podcast. Um, The first person he got me. Well, it's appropriate. Because a first person he is in all sorts of ways. I'm just off to the house of someone who can rightly call themselves true pioneer of Doctor Who. And listen to me. There's no puns. No whimsy. Because I'm just a bit... I'm a bit faced by this one. Because... (sighs) Well, because of who it is just well look just listen to who it is i hope the interview goes well because well, otherwise i'll just have to remount it and uh, and do it again albeit with with certain changes <laughs> uh-huh. so uh, but uh, i'm here i've, I've been kind invited to the house of uh, Somebody who there at the very beginning of Doctor Who has Just goodbye to two builders Who were rather nonplussed by any mention of Doctor Who Which is a sh- sh- shock, but I am suitably reverent um, And as I ask the gentleman who's kindly invited me into him To tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who
1: Well, I'm Waris Hussein, And I was the very first director of the very first four episodes of the Doctor Who
0: and uh, as we talk about this, you're sort of revisiting that time because yesterday, I believe, you saw yourself in action at the read-through of Mark Gatiss' An Adventure in Space and Time. I
1: did indeed. I saw my doppelganger uh, played by a very talented young actor called Sasha Duan, who's playing me when I was that age, in my 20s, when I directed the show. And uh, in the script, that's what's happening. He's... Um, He's the first person on board and, uh, under the aegis of Sidney Newman and Verity Lambert, who's the first producer of the show.
0: And so it must be, str- I mean, when you think back to how long it is, it must be strange. But actually, when you see it being recreated, that must be all sorts of strange, especially when you are one of the people being represented.
1: Well, not seeing it so much as hearing it at this point, because they haven't started shooting yet. But it was a very strange situation, revisiting one's life in a fictional sort of way, although, of course, a lot of facts are incorporated into the script by Mark Gattis, who's actually uh, writing the script. So, uh, no, it was a very strange experience, but a rather pleasant one in a funny way. Um, I sort of couldn't help smiling because it sort of felt that I've done a full circle in my career. <laughs> this is where I started, and I have then went off and did God knows how many things, and now I'm back to square one in a funny way. That's how I saw it anyway.
0: Now, we're not going to talk too much about that, because it's only just been announced. As you say, it hasn't started shooting yet, and frankly, there's too much spoilering goes on anyway, and yeah. we would like people to discover it when it goes out. But do you think do you think it is a, a, a fair and accurate representation of of, of the time and, and of the genesis of Doctor Who? I think it's as fair as it can possibly be within the constraints of drama. You can never get everything in.
1: Uh, it's just impossible, you know? You, what you have to do is use certain elements within a story points so that you can actually entertain an audience. What you're not doing is giving them a documentary so much as a personal view and also humanising the people involved, uh, which in some ways uh, needs a certain amount of dramatic latitude. But otherwise, I think it's a very, very good script that Mark has written. And he's focused most of the central points on the life of William Hartnell... And William Hartnell's involvement with the character.
0: Well, and we shall leave that there and actually go back to the reality that this fiction is mirroring, which is 50 years ago this year, which is why we're doing this podcast and why you've kindly agreed to speak to me, Um, and your involvement with Doctor Who and you becoming, your involvement first off with the BBC itself. So, how did that happen?
1: Ah, that's interesting. Um, Well, I I think I better just. Uh, give you a bit of a prologue to this um i i 've always been interested in theater and drama and acting and and directing right um, and uh, I was very lucky because both at school uh, which was uh, I went to school in, in Bristol a school called clifton college uh, public school and they had a theater tradition we also lived very nearby to the Bristol Old Vic. So we used to go down and watch them rehearse the plays. And the Bristol Old Vic at that time was very influential in theatre. Some of the most famous names from today even worked there as young actors and actresses. I'll never forget there were people like Joan Plowright and uh, Peter O'Toole, Rosemary Harris. We had uh, names to conjure with and... um, Anyway, as a schoolboy, I was fascinated uh, and then i got i, I graduated I, w- I got a space at Cambridge and Cambridge, I found was even more theatrically inclined. I managed to get a lot of experience directing and that stood me in good stead because when I graduated, I tried for a very brief time unsuccessfully to be an actor failed abysmally because i wasn 't very good uh, so I applied through the appointments board at the University uh, to the BBC as a potential trainee. Uh, When I went up for an interview this is the first time I actually became aware of my ethnicity Uh, because the moment I was interviewed by them they uh, obviously were very interested but they said do you what would you do when we um, uh, gave you a job at Bush House which in those days Bush House represented uh, broadcasting to the Far and South Asia India, Pakistan etc and I realised what they were doing were, off- were offering me a job from the country of my origin because I was born in India but brought up in England and I saw where they were coming from and I said well I'm not sure whether I, uh, you know let me say this I said in a rather arrogant way uh, I actually want to go into television and not uh, waste your time and my talent. That was a pretty daring thing to say, but I needed to say it. Uh, television. Well, I was 20-something years old. Uh, television at that time was peopled by some very senior directors. all in their 40s, 50s and 60s even there was a very famous director called Rudolf Cartier, yeah, who was the nice. sort of um, Cecil B. DeMille of the BBC. He did some extraordinarily large, ambitious production of major world stars. Anyway, so for me to ask to get into this Fort Knox of directing was quite daring and I had to go for multiple interviews and um, at one point they said, look, uh, we can give you a permanent job if you accept the one at Bush House. It'll be what we call uh, pensionable. Um, and, uh, or would you rather settle if we decided to give you this chance to for a non-pensionable uh, uh, job as a trainee with television? And that would only be for six months, and then at the end of six months we didn't want you, we'd let you go. So what is more tempting to you, the more permanent or the less? And I had to make a very radical decision. And I said, temporary. I want television if you can give it to me. Um, Ended up with, uh, I got a letter from the BBC saying, we regret that unfortunately you haven't got the job, uh, but we're putting you on a short list, and should anything happen in between now and the course starting, you'll be the first on our list. Well, I can tell you I was devastated. I hid hid the letter from my parents. Um, And the Friday before the course started, I got a phone call. Was I free to start on Monday? Someone had fallen out. And that's exactly what happened. Could not believe my luck. But I might add that at that time I was getting so desperate that what had happened was strangely enough, as prior to any of this, I'd had a call from the BBC. I put my photograph in Spotlight, the actors' magazine photos, as a possible actor, and I got a call uh, because of my name and look, I suppose, uh, to go and see the director was in already rehearsing. It was a series called A for Andromeda,
0: uh-huh.
1: and. Uh, it was set in the deserts of wherever, Middle East, and they required a, a, a wireless operator part. Well, I went to see the director, and he said, "Oh, that's great. Yes, absolutely. You, you'd be fine." And I said, "Oh, thank you." And I said, "Where's the script?" And I said, "Oh, don't worry. You speak Arabic, of course." And I said, "Yes, yes, of course." <laughs> so well, then we'll just ask you to improvise. We'll have you sitting in the booth talking in Arabic my heart sank because this was a job and I'd faked my way into getting the job came home panic stricken and I said what am I going to do my mother, I lived at home in those days my mother said oh well, there's a, a Arab speaking lady upstairs I think what you do is you um, ask her to write, everything, uh, write down a whole lot of stuff in Roman le- lettering and then ha- ask, you, ask her to tell you how to pronounce it well this was a whole page of improvisation supposedly and my, I didn't know what to do and that was when the phone call came and this was a BBC project that I'd been nailed onto so I had to say to the people calling I said well I, I don't know what to say to you but I've got a, got a job of oh we can take care of that said somebody at the other end of the phone so I was released from my uh, job as a uh, oper- uh, telegraphic operator
0: so oh, so we didn't get you in <coughs> for no you didn't
1: because thank god I was rescued <laughs> literally somebody up there was looking down on me and favouring me and on the Monday following I turned up at the traineeship place and that was the beginning of my six months at which I learned everything that I know today and for that I'm eternally grateful to the BBC what I didn't realise was whether I would be kept on or not. And at the end of six months, you had to do a, um, you had to do a production exercise. After all, you'd learned, and in the studio with four cameras, a crew, a full crew, you built the set. You had the set built. Your requirements. It had to be twenty minutes long, a minimum of half an hour, maximum. And believe it or not, I chose, of all the things that my other colleagues chose. I chose a Tennessee Williams one act, and uh, it was a thing called Hello from Bertha, set in New Orleans. It's about a woman, a prostitute, who's dying in the red light district in her room, and the madam comes in and tries to get her to vacate the room. It's a very cruel piece, but it's also about so many things undercurrent of how how lightly human beings are treated and how they can be just dismissed. Uh, for who they are what they are and I have to say after great hesitation and almost not being able to achieve my ambitions, I did manage to get the show, the show on in the can it was my production exercise and then I had to wait for the verdict. Five of my outside colleagues who had come in with families and children who depended on their being taken on for jobs went in for their various interviews, one after the other, and I was the last one to go in. Came out with long faces, and I thought, oh, God, uh, I'm in for it now. The last one to go in, the axe is going to fall. Went in, the man was extremely polite, and he said, uh, welcome to the BBC. <laughs> and that's how I got the job. Uh, I, to this day, you have to realise, BBC in those days was very, very much of a male orientated. It was like going on board a ship. It was all everybody wearing uh, old school ties and blazers. (laughs) And, you know, for me to get infiltrate, that's all I can say, is to get into that was already a miracle. It turns out, because I was the most junior director at the BBC at the time, the youngest, I might add, rapidly, I remember going into a, a director's meeting, we were all summoned once to talk about the drama department and um, I walked in and all heads turned including the one of the man who'd been directing A.F. <laughs> and had auditioned me for the operator and I I couldn't help feeling his sort of eyes sort of boring into me, <laughs> laser like, wondering what the hell is this kid doing at the end of the table I sort of slunk into a chair, uh, then it turns out the reason I got, I was summoned to do this thing called Doctor Who, and nobody knew what it was, it was supposed to replace a slot between football I think and the jukebox jewellery for the kids, it was not, there was a children's department in those days but this was not that, and the whole thing had been thought up by Sidney Newman who um, was a Canadian and he'd been brought in from ITV to be the head of drama and he wanted to make his mark and he created this idea of a phone box, telephone box, police telephone box. Anyway, the point was, it was so unusual and then he brought in this extraordinary young woman called Verity Lambert who'd been a PA at ITV and I was just allocated this job without any consultation I walked into an office I remember it was a room with a table and two chairs and there was this extraordinary looking young woman she was very attractive and uh, I said hello I'm Warris, and she said I'm Verity hello and uh, she said I'm your producer and I said oh well I'm your director and uh, I said what are we going to do with these scripts is all about cavemen and finding fire and how are we going to do this with straight faces without having becoming a laughing stock
0: but it's interesting that the, you know, Doctor Who is the ultimate Doctor Who fans quite often feel themselves to be outsiders and we yes. sort of subsume ourselves in this thing with a long history and that's mm. really. and it was created and nurtured by a Canadian by a woman, and an by your, yourself, <laughs> who are all the people who within the BBC yeah, were probably sort of we of outs- that ilk.
1: We were outsiders. And as I said later, I never thought of it at the time, but now in retrospect, I said, you know, we were the three aliens that... Uh, William Hartnell, who, by the way, ended up playing it, um, was a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. I mean, you know, even to the edge of being possibly a racist. Don't forget, at that time... There was a lot of panic going on because immigration had become an issue. Suddenly Britain had woken up to the fact that a lot of people were coming in from f- what used to be their empire. The Ugandan Asians who'd been exiled because they were, Russia, they were being uh, kicked out by uh, Idi Amin were coming in lo- plain loads. And Enoch Powell made this terrible speech about rivers of blood and so and there were people who literally i mean you couldn't find accommodation a lot of landladies no vacancy sort of thing we'd already had the the uh, west indian in uh, in and uh, in, in they they'd come in earlier in the 50s windrush but now there were suddenly the, these indians coming in so there was i there's a history there you know yeah. for me to be directing this piece um I uh, first of all, the reason for me doing it was because no one else wanted to touch it. They'd had another director, and he, he, he walked off of it. And didn't want to know. It was, uh, so, and then here we were. I mean, locked into something that I
0: had no choice under contract. Uh, I, I'm curious though because uh, because Doctor is so well documented William Hartnell's attitude to race is quite well documented but because of that I fear sometimes that it might be skewed that he was the only actor to be slightly askance at people from an ethnic background but he can't have been the only actor that you well, encountered
1: I, the only thing was that of course I didn't come into direct uh, contact with many uh, uh, others mm-hmm. who were in such close contact uh, a lot of them may have reacted in the they, whatever they, way they felt. But here was a dyed-in-the-wool Brit who'd worked himself through, you know, every aspect of the theatre profession. He was, a cons- he was very proudly an actor and proudly a Brit. And, he, you know, the Second World War, I mean, he was of a generation. You've got to understand where he came from, mm-hmm. working class, uh, risen up in the, through the ranks of his career. Uh, suddenly he's faced with a woman producer which he'd never experienced before young and attractive at that an Indian speaking with a fairly posh
0: accent uh, and a Canadian head of drama I mean, three aliens and it was that Canadian head of drama who um, after you'd done the pilot made you rip it up and start again and change various yeah. things looking back at those episodes now Ooh were all the calls that he made for you to change from Sydney. the pilot yeah, yes. to change from the pilot to the episode that was broadcast, would, were they the right calls do you think? Absolutely was he right? they were the right calls. He Sidney
1: you know I don't think he gets enough credit for all this. Do you realise that every time those credits roll at the end of the shows even till today nobody has acknowledged Sydney Newman created by Coronation Street has Tony Warren. Uh, EastEnders have Tony Holland. You know what I mean? They're acknowledged every week. And Sydney has not been acknowledged. I find this awful. I really have voiced my feelings about it. And no one has reacted the way they should.
0: Well, I remember when uh, Sydney died and his obituary in The Guardian said, as long as many... uh, uh, achievements were that he greenlit Doctor Who, and I thought, oh no, no, no. he didn't greenlight Doctor Who. He, he, he formulated it. it. Yeah,
1: the whole idea of a
0: police phone box was his. Which, by the way, it seems I've seen from
1: it's not mentioned in the script. I should mar- I should mention that to Mark. Um,
0: so that that was that was part of his was briefing. His, was it? Was it? His, yeah. it was his briefing. Um, and that genesis is um, is fairly well known. What we'll always gets sort of lost. In, in the melee of that talk is, th- is the poor old cavemen afterwards wh- oh, who who must have played their part in uh, th- those three scripts that you mentioned before we started recording you weren't quite so hot on as, as the well, first can episode you,
1: I mean uh, let's let's go into why I wasn't hot on it it's a very tough call to you Well, know, cavemen have usually been made fun of mm-hmm. you know what I mean uh, here's the Flintstones <laughs> and you know you can easily laugh at what we're trying to do—sure, uh, our shaggy version of
0: Flintstones—and yet it's supposed to be serious and frightening. Well, I so think, I think where you make it work, if I may, mm. is that you treat that environment. We're so used to Doctor Who telling stories about aliens now. What I think that caveman environment in those three episodes of Doctor Who is as inhospitable an alien envir- an environment as Doctor Who ever encountered. encountered.
1: Well, I—I'm glad you think so but you have to understand what went into creating that world with articulate actors who had to perform. And uh, it's very interesting, Jeremy Young has this story about saying less is more. Can we cut back on some of the dialogue so that we're not articulating long sentences? And that we can say things in shorter bursts of dialogue. And we did follow that pattern. And, uh, we, and the other thing was to actually say to everybody, take yourself seriously. This is not a joke. And it was my job to make it work as well to create the environment. I know, you see, I didn't watch. I have a box set, but I deliberately did not watch until the other week when they screened at the NFT. The BFI had a screening and then I saw it in all its glory, four hours, four episodes, and I thought to myself, God, I actually did that. And there's a panning shot of them all asleep in the cave to keep warm. And I literally had men, women, and children lying, huddled in different sleeping positions like animals trying to keep warm. That one shot says more about the seriousness of keeping warm and surviving than any amount of dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that helped to create the atmosphere. So that was one of the ways of dealing with it.
0: That's what I thought. Well, and it's a generous act to to say, give me less dialogue. But the the other way I think you make a virtue of that, because they get brilliantly cast as well. Jeremy Young has that great... Great face. face without a nose. Yeah, uh, and they're very dirty. Yeah. And but the, I remember when I was watching it for a book I wrote, um, noticing that um, a lot of what you did with the actors is you focus quite a lot on Derek Newark when he's working things out. And he doesn't do it with the dialogue; yeah. he does it by twitching his face and not his, eyes, top, and his eyes, and his eyes, yeah. and they're searching for a thought. Uh, yes, and 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 again, so you're suggesting that these aren't articulate creatures, but you're you're transmitting their thought process because the camera comes. Yes. Straight into them, yeah, um, and and you've got the inky blackness behind them because they're beautifully lit as well. Though. Black and w- yes,
1: black and white uh, helped. <laughs> Those days it wasn't thin colour, so you could get that sort of thing, that image.
0: Now going back to that, the, the changes from the pilot to the to the, ep- the, the the series as it transpired. One person who I think m- may feel. That uh, her finest moment was in the pilot it was maybe Caroline Ford, who got to be much more alien um in the pilot and was then yeah. told to tone that down. To Do you think that was a bit She's of a shame? always
1: uh, had a she's always uh, voiced her disappointments about that. And um you see it was Sydney's decision. Uh he wanted her to represent the potential viewing audience as well, um and yet make her know about things that others wouldn't know anything about, like mathematics and history and stuff like that. Um, Looking at the pilot where we made her more weird, in a funny way, I think Sydney was right, because you could not have played that consistently week after week without sort of saying, oh God, she's a weirdo. Um, It's much more interesting if she happens to be more human and less strange. Uh, admittedly there was a lot of her screaming in jeopardy which she didn't like doing either uh, her theory being that why would I be so fazed by facing a monster when I've probably seen them in another life And um, but that's going into psychological detail which unfortunately could not be supported by the narrative thrust of the stories and um,
0: what about the one one person who's very shrouded in mystery who was a key contributor and then vanishes from Doctor is Peter Bracacchi, who designed the Tardis. Um. Now, would he have done that independently? Did you have a say in that? Were you...? Yeah. In... Peter, Peter was a, look, he was
1: allocated the job. Uh, we were all allocated the job, and he was a staff director who presumably uh, was not the top of the heap, no more than I was. Um, and I suspect he was resentful of the whole situation. He thought it was a waste of time and he was very impatient and more or less slung this thing together this hexagonal which has now become iconic (laughs) but at the time it was like oh screw it I'm going to do one of those spinning top things that you know with with six sides and put them on a you know on a stand the only thing he really came up with which was the, the thing going up and down the center of the console which I thought was a brilliant idea. But look at the actual set. It was four flats with circles in them. (laughs) I mean, that's all it was. I mean, you know, we had no money. The BBC did not put any money into these initial shows. It was only when they realised that they had something that money started to flow. And even then, not much. Not until much later. It's ironic that today's Doctor Who's cost millions, I mean a million, Mm -hmm. to do with CGI and all the special effects. In those days, we didn't have any special
0: effects you it was what's interesting though is that and it's uh, particularly contrasting because you were the young Turks weren't you the yourself and Richard Martin and Christopher yeah. Barry the young bucks mm-hmm. on the show, and yet your the associate producer who was sort of keeping an eye on you was Mervyn Pinfield yes. who also directed some of the early doctor who's And it's very interesting watching the ones that he directs where the camera is quite static and you have quite long three-minute scenes, whereas you're moving the camera and the way you suggest the size of the TARDIS is Jacqueline Hill enters it and you've got a close-up on her face then you pull back and you're very fluid with your camera move.
1: Deliberately so because I was an officiando of... um, I used to watch a lot of television and films and ABC Theatre on ITV Used to do the most extraordinary visual stuff. Uh, there were directors like Philip Saville, mm-hmm. uh, who would literally have odd angles with his cameras, especially when you're continuous shooting. How the hell do you organise your life? But you know, I never forget shots from sort of looking up from underneath glass top tables <laughs> at people looking down at things, and 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 movement from a to B, past things and foreground objects, and you know, everything was cluttered and nothing was neat, and that was what I aspired to. However, in Studio D, Lime Grove, which was the most derelict of all the studios they could have put us into, which was this awful sort of barn of a place, the camera equipment there was antique. These cameras were almost as tall as the cameraman, they were six foot or so very heavy to manoeuvre and yet I was determined not to let everybody sit on their haunches and, and said no, we're going to move from here to there on one shot oh my god, the cameraman would say poor man, with, you know with straining his back to get it, but we got it, and that was my ambition, because I felt if People at ABC television can do their dramas the way I like. Why can't I do mine at the BBC? That was the beginning of my sort of visual rebellion. It's now, I mean, everybody's hand holding and God knows what, but all the single cameras. The other thing
0: about um, Doctor Who in those early days that is um, very ap- apparent is, is the soundscape, where you've got this mixture of the pioneering work of the Radiophonics Workshop and then you've got this wonderful sort of bric-a-brac music from Norman Kaye for those first episodes that's extremely evocative. So yes. was, was that something you, you were particularly interested in or did you, did you get them, they come to you No, with I ideas? didn't dictate the
1: kind of music we needed but I did say this is the kind of atmosphere we want. I mean, Norman Kaye was not chosen by me, Verity chose him, she was the producer. Uh, but all we could do is we would decide where the music cues would be. And, that's, and those were, by the way, cued in live into the studio while the performance is happening. You didn't do it in post. Today everything is done in post-production. Uh, after the show has been shot, ours was not like that. I would literally be sitting upstairs in the control room and I'd say, cue music four, or cue music six.
0: And the Grams operator and the Grams would.
1: operator next door is standing by to cue it. He, absolutely on the dot. He couldn't hesitate for a second
0: now i remember a friend of mine who is a doctor who writer but met you independently because you were having dinner at uh, martin jarvis's house and he was delighted rob shearman uh was delighted to be seated next to you and he said i had this lovely conversation with robert Hussain and he is devastated that marco polo doesn't exist he doesn't uh, I mean, we're all devastated because we're doctor who fans but we sometimes forget that you know you the people that made it now some people you speak to you work to doctor, go oh it was just this thing I did but you, you genuinely feel the loss of Marco Polo I definitely feel the loss of Marco Polo because it was absolutely brilliant <laughs> not
1: just because of me but because the script was fabulous with John Lucarotti who did a lot of research and we were at that time conveying what was necessary for teaching children about history the whole format was past, present, past so the, the, or the present being the future was the Daleks uh, after the cavemen and then after the Daleks Marco Polo, so he went back into the past and the children learned about the journey from Venice to Cathay, which was China, the Imperial Court and on the way of course they were all sorts of adventures well, in Studio D. Lime Grove with mm. polystyrene rocks and Deserts that had to be manufactured with wind machines and interference on the monitors, so that it looks like sandstorms. Uh,
0: it's all improvisation. But you think if if oh joy, if it turned up, it wouldn't then be. Did you feel it wouldn't be a disappointment? Did you feel that you you opened up Lime well, Grove Studio? I think did?
1: what I would like to see is the Barry Newberry who directed uh, designed it was absolutely brilliant and we had lots of scenes set not just in the mountains or snow, but um, what they call way stations where people paused and stopped and ate and yeah, like supply depots. And he they? D- he designed the most fabulous way stations <coughs> simply by changing the flats around and the environment and using the same materials but disguising them in different ways. And this was ingenious on the part of a designer. And uh, you felt, I mean, we also had a map that used to, uh, just for educational purposes, while they were talking voiceover, following the trail of these people across mountains and going to Caucasus and through towards China and,
0: you know, the various parts of the world. Well, the, yes, because it's un- very unusual in that regard in that the real time length of the story is, is a few months. You know, the doc, right. they, they right. don't just nip in and have a quick adventure with Marco yeah. Polo at all, they travel with him.
1: That's right. Marco, of course, became their friend. Then we had a, a villain played by a T- man called Tagana, Darren, Darren Nesbitt, who, who also play, imbued it with that sinister... Of course, Darren was famous for playing uh, sinister types in films. He had a ball playing this character.
0: <laughs> but, but he was normally sort of blonde Nazis and he's, yeah. he's actually dark-haired, dark-haired and a big warrior. Mm-hmm. And yet it's a very, because obviously we can only hear the sound mm-hmm. track, but it's a very studded, he doesn't go for it, which I like, he's he much more... Un-
1: but the f- his strength was underplaying. He, he had a strong presence.
0: And I think Mark Eden maintains it's one of the best things he ever did well. Well, Mark uh, Eden
1: was the sort of um, heroic hunk, if you like. He had all the ingredients... For being a hero in it.
0: But you have that thing that now, of course, it was very common for Doctor Who, but um, we're we're very conscious of now, is that you couldn't get the genuine article playing various nationalities. You've got a Czechoslovakian Kubla Khan, for example, (laughs) because because of of Um, a shortage of actors. um, All
1: these ethnic types with slant eyes. Well, yes, I mean, in today's market, there'd be a riot in the streets, and Chinatown would be uh, besieging my house. No, I, I we couldn't. There was nobody around. I mean, what can you do? You just got uh, the, the nearest person we came to was Xenia Merton, mm. who was half uh, Asian. I don't think she was even Chinese. I think she was um, maybe uh, Burmese. I
0: think she is. Yeah. Anyway,
1: she was half and half, but she was made a very pretty ping cho. <laughs> We did our research into how they all looked and the way the costumes were worn and that sort of thing. I mean, I was very aware, being who I am, that you can't fool around with people's cultures. You've got to try and get it as right as you can within the framework of the budget. And, uh, you know, so we did try very
0: hard to get everything right. And so what was it about Lucarotti's scripts? Because it's quite an ask to to expect people to... Um, stick with something over seven episodes and it's still to be gripping and all that but it, it does, work. so what, 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 what was, was the it? quality that his script had? Well I think he, very, he was a very literal,
1: literate man um, he did his research, he was extremely good at answering questions when we were baffled by history and I respected him enormously because he had to then filter all this down to the idea of telling a story which would keep children interested as well you can't just lecture to them. You could have an adventure, and they, this was an adventure. I mean, they were attacked by bandits, and it was Darren Nesbit was the villain who pretended to be their friend but was there out of self-interest to finally rob them and kill them. So that's jeopardy already. Mm-hmm. Now, as a historian, John, a uh, researcher, anyway, he has to incorporate these very simple storylines of villainy and heroism into a historical context. So,
0: I respected him highly for this. But, having been at the helm of the very first Doctor Who adventure and then the knowledge lost classic of the of the first year you you didn't come back to Doctor Who no <laughs> well, you don't forget you know I'd done my stint,
1: I'd done almost a year on this from beginning to end, and i I felt I needed to do other things I mean, I'm not being snobbish about it, but going to Cambridge taught me a hell of a lot about literature, and about theatre, and the sort of people that I was uh, contemporaries with, who have since become very famous, such as Ian McKellen and Derek Jacobi, were my contemporaries. Trevor Nunn, we all grew up together, so the fact is I definitely wanted to go into a more uh, elevated area of the drama department, which existed. I just, it was, the doors for that were shut to me at this time until i proved my capacity or capabilities as a director and then i gradually was taken on by what was then a play slot for the week or wednesday play
0: it's not just what you've made you've got an appetite to make more and more and to keep absolutely i have and there is a
1: hint at the moment that i might do a doctor who
0: <laughs> well I think that would have a lot of us very excited indeed, and uh, I, I certainly think that um, if, if the will of the, the, the fans can propel you uh, that extra inch, I'm sure it will be doing so now as people yeah, are listening. So. <laughs> uh, well, look, you've kindly done this in your own time and free, and uh, we don't charge for these podcasts. I ask the listeners, um, if they so desire, if they've enjoyed what we've given them, to donate to a charity yes. that I would ask you to nominate so for the, this podcast the the Sane yes. interview podcast whereas if you have a if you have a charity I do have
1: yes I do uh, it's cancer cancer research
0: cancer research
1: at uh, Marsden Royal Marsden at the Royal oh, Marsden I don't they want to give it
0: ok but that's very much on my agenda I want that to be done and the, the, the last question which is a horrible question which is um, I think more pertinent to you than to anybody else I've done this podcast with is it's Doctor Who's 50th birthday. You were there for it when it was born. What's your message to those people, that the, the fans out there, who, who were bewitched by that, that series all those years ago or have come to it since on this, on this quite major occasion?
1: My message to them yeah. is those of them who were kids then
0: <laughs>
1: are now happily middle-aged and will encourage their kids to keep watching and encouraging the show because it'll keep going. Some of them, of the fans, were never even born at the time. So all I can say is, long live Doctor Who.
0: I think we can all agree with that. Well, look, Boris Hussain, thank you so much for your time. Um, my thanks to Warris Hussain, who directed the first episode of Doctor Who. I'm very privileged, and I'm aware of that, and I just hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I'm enjoying doing them. We actually chatted for another 45 minutes. Now, everyone, would you be lis- interested to, to listen to the rest of the interview? Would you like to hear those sort of off-cuts? Uh, Boris is saying part two. Uh, the thing is, it takes a certain amount of ad- editing to do that. And these were all planned to be as untime-consuming as possible. Um, because I've got to earn a living. <laughs> well, look, but look, if people, if people really only want to hear the Doctor Who stuff, uh, like we just played you in this interview you've just heard that's fine that's fine if you just want these podcasts to just be Doctor. i mean i'll judge you but no that's fine but if you do like the wider all-encompassing elements of the conversations that we have then i don't mind neglecting my children to, to put those together and put them out just for you so just let us know if you write to podcast at bigfinish.com look any feedback leads on interviewees anything like that is all welcome and it is received with much gratitude from me signing out now toby Haydug. Uh i was born between episodes two and four of the time warrior so yes i always wear links i sometimes do really bad links like that one <laughs> go away toby you even annoying yourself now Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Blake 7, The Armageddon Storm. Shorin burned.
1: My name is Callie, a member of the rebellion.
0: For several weeks I've been working with the resistance movement here on Shorin. Del Grant, mercenary. The Resistance discovered that the Federation Science Corps has been working on a new super-weapon known only as PDX-10. So, what's our next move? Where do we start looking for this PDX-10 thing? I mean, the sooner we find it and disarm it, the sooner we can safely be away. According to the intel, Shorin is the likely target for a full-test detonation.
1: The planet Shorin has been devastated by a new weapon developed by the Federation
0: data scrolled across the view screen data logs and vid records of the pdx10
1: it's as if the planet has been turned inside out
0: we watched in silence the true horror of the armageddon storm unfolding before us
1: grants weapon it's real alright pdx10 ready for planet wide testing
0: no hope of escape
1: and the sky above us
0: burns Subscribers get more from BigFinish.com